0: Good evening. So in these evening talks, I've been exploring a range of different skillful mind states that support the deepening of stillness, the opening to peace, and the tasting of freedom. That's the overall theme of this retreat. And I brought in the metaphor of the two wings to awakening, the wisdom wing and the compassion wing. And compassion in this context is kind of shorthand for all four of the Brahma Vihara. And this evening I'd like to focus specifically on the quality of equanimity, because in many ways equanimity is a kind of a hinge or a, a fulcrum between these two wings. It's an aspect of wisdom, a fruit of our insight practice, and it's also a quality that can be cultivated very directly as the last of the four Brahma Vihara meditations. So in many ways, equanimity is the culmination of all the practices that we're doing here, and it's a quality that's very highly valued in the Buddha's teachings and almost completely undervalued in mainstream society. So much so that probably many of us have never even heard the word equanimity until we came into contact with the Dharma. So what is equanimity? As a very brief definition, it basically means balance. The balance of the heart-mind that's completely at ease. So there's no wanting anything and no resisting anything. And it's the capacity to simply be with what is, in a state of deep acceptance and peace. So equanimity is a very powerful quality and it helps us to navigate transitions and life challenges of all kinds. The highs and lows, the ups and downs, the successes and failures, Or as they say in the Taoist tradition, the 10,000 sorrows and the 10,000 joys. And possibly some of you thinking, well, that sounds great, but you don't know what's going on in my life right now. Or you might have even had the experience on this retreat of all of those ups and downs so that deep acceptance and peace might seem as far away as the moon. But the Buddha was very clear that equanimity is a quality that we can cultivate. And in fact, pretty much every practice that we do here leads towards this quality of balanced ease and peace. And we can see this in the way that equanimity is included in so many of the numbered lists of the Buddha's teachings. So, as you hopefully remember equanimity is the last of the seven factors of awakening. And it's also the last of the four Brahma-Bihara, as well as two or three other lists that I'm not going to go into now. But just to say that equanimity is extremely valued in these teachings. So in the context of the suttas, the discourses, according to Gil Fransdell, the English word equanimity translates two separate Pali words that were used by the Buddha upekka and tatta upekka, which is the more common term means to look over and it refers to the equanimity that arises from the power of observation it's the ability to see without being caught by what we see and when well-developed, such power gives rise to a great sense of peace. So the Pali word upekka has a lot to do with vision, with clear seeing, and that links it directly to insight or the vipassana. And to me, this aspect of equanimity resonates with an experience I've sometimes had when I've been hiking in mountains. Maybe you've had that experience where you go through a lot of uphill climbing and then finally you get above the tree line and you can look out over the terrain below and then suddenly I can see where I came from in a whole new context and there's a sense of openness and expansiveness because I'm not stuck in my own narrow viewpoint anymore and that change of perspective can feel like a moment of release Uh, kind of taste of the freedom that comes when we are able to see the bigger picture. So that's one way equanimity can be understood and experienced. The second word that's usually translated as equanimity, tatra-maja-tata, it has a slightly different flavor. And again, according to Gil Fronstell, he says this is a long compound word that comes from tatra, meaning there, sometimes referring to all these things. Majja means middle, and tata means to stand or to pose. So to put those together, the word becomes to stand in the middle of all this. To stand in the middle of all this. And he says, as a form of equanimity, this being in the middle refers to balance, to remaining centered in the middle of whatever is happening. And this form of balance comes from some inner strength or stability. The strong presence of inner calm, well-being, confidence, vitality, or integrity can keep us upright. Like ballast keeps a ship upright in strong winds. So Gil uses the analogy of ballast. It's the weight in a ship's hull that keeps it upright. And in my own experience, I had a a bit of a taste of this quite a long time ago now. When many years ago, I had the chance to live on board a small boat in a small town in Western Australia. And a friend and I bought this boat while we were living in New Zealand. And we hadn't even seen it when we bought it. So after traveling all the way from Auckland, New Zealand to Western Australia several thousand kilometers. When we finally saw our new purchase, it was just a little bit disappointing to discover that our new yacht, in quotation marks, was actually a broken-down old wreck of a sailing boat that was completely unsalable at that point. Now, back then, I didn't know anything about the Dharma, so for a while, there wasn't a whole lot of equanimity when I first realized this. But we got over the shock and we spent many months trying to fix up this yacht with the idea that we would restore it and then we would sail across the Indian Ocean from Australia to Africa, which didn't happen. (laughs) But that's another whole story and not so relevant for the talk tonight. The point is that although the boat was quite small, just 10 meters, it had a huge keel that weighed one metric tonne. And one of my tasks when we were repairing the boat was to sand down and to repaint that massive lead keel while the boat was out of the water. So I spent quite a bit of time with that keel and I just wondered why does such a small boat need such a huge keel? But once we did manage to get it in the water, I understood why. Sometimes the rough waves and the strong winds and the tile currents would push the boat hard over into the water but it was the weight of the keel that kept it from capsizing and the keel is also what made it possible to steer the boat through the waves and the winds and the ocean currents without that keel below the water the boat would just bob about on the surface of the sea so equanimity is a bit like that Like the boat, we all are subject to the changing conditions of life. But equanimity, the keel, lets us navigate through all of them without flipping over, without flipping out. At times when conditions are strong, we might still lean right over, but thanks to the keel, we don't capsize or sink. Now, as I'm describing that now, there's one other way that that analogy works, that Just like the keel, the keel is invisible when the boat is in the water, and equanimity might seem invisible under ordinary conditions, but it's massively powerful. So even though we might understand intellectually that equanimity is a valuable uh, quality, for many people it's quite challenging to start to embody more deeply. And this might be partly because equanimity is not something that's valued much by mainstream society. In mainstream society, drama is generally much more valued. We're almost addicted to the highs and lows of life. And of course, we're understanding how much social media is actually firing up and deliberately manipulating us into more extreme reactions. And because of that, we maybe don't pay much attention to the times when we might be more balanced and at ease. Again, because of the mind's inbuilt negativity bias, those times are not threatening to our survival, so they might not register in the same way. Perhaps similarly, mainstream society, again, tends to put a lot of emphasis on doing rather than being. And we're pressured to have, to get, to gain, to attain, to achieve, to succeed, to become someone special. And so putting aside all of that activity to just be with our own hearts and minds is a pretty foreign concept for a lot of people. So some of you might know that famous quote from the French philosopher Blaise Pascal where he says all of humanity's problems stem from our inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And that might sound quite modern, but apparently it was written in the 1600s. And since then, the ability of people to be alone with themselves without distraction has deteriorated even further. So a few years ago, some research psychologists in the U.S. did a study to test how people would respond if they were invited to spend time alone in a room without their usual distractions. So the participants were asked to spend up to a maximum of 15 minutes alone in a room without their phones or anything to read or do, except just sit and maybe think. And the only thing in the room was a device that would give them a mild electric shock. And before the study started, the scientists demonstrated on each participant how intense that shock would be. And every one of the participants who got the shock found it so unpleasant that they said they would pay to not have that experience again. But guess what? (laughs) When they were left alone in the room, for between six minutes and 15 minutes, three quarters of the male participants gave themselves at least one electric shock, <laughs> and a quarter of the female participants did it too. So I think humanity's doomed. <laughs> or not, because all of you, these people only had to be there for a maximum of 15 minutes. How many minutes, how many hours have we been here on this retreat? So I share that just to get a sense of how equanimity can challenge some pretty strong conditioning. But again, we can cultivate this quality. And whether we recognize it or not, all of us have been developing it pretty consistently because equanimity is also an aspect of mindfulness. As you know, mindfulness is that stable clear, non-judgmental awareness. Or as Bhikkhu likes to define mindfulness, as to keep calmly knowing change. Keep calmly knowing change. And that calm aspect is the non-reactive quality of equanimity. So every moment of mindfulness is sim- simultaneously strengthening non-reactivity. And the less reactive we are, the easier it is to be equanimous. And when, we're, when there's equanimity, we can pay attention with that non-judgmental attitude. There's also a strong relationship between equanimity and wisdom. And specifically in relation to those three universal characteristics of anicca, dukkha, anatta, that I mentioned last night. So I spoke about these three as the understanding that everything we experience is impermanent, it's imperfect, and it's impersonal. And seeing these three characteristics more deeply supports the peace of equanimity. Because when we understand that everything is constantly changing, that none of it can give us lasting satisfaction... And all of it is arising due to impersonal causes and conditions, and it's not entirely our fault, we can more naturally let go of clinging and resisting. The opposite is also true. The more we resist the truth of these insights, the less equanimity we experience and the more we suffer. So the degree of equanimity that we're experiencing, it gives us very clear feedback about whether we are living in alignment with wisdom or not. In the beginning, though, as we start to explore this quality of equanimity, what we tend to notice more clearly is the absence of equanimity much of the time. And that's okay. Because when we're aware of the absence of equanimity, we're recognizing what's known as its far enemy. So I briefly mentioned the other day, I think that each one of these Brahma-Vihara qualities has what's known as a far enemy and a near enemy. For equanimity, the near enemy is indifference, which I'll come back to soon. For now, I want to focus on the far enemy, which is the direct opposite of ease and peace. In other words, all forms of reactivity. All of our mental reactions are rooted in greed and hatred and delusion. So the far enemy of equanimity is that reactivity. That reactivity to the ever-changing circumstances of life and also of retreat. So in the individual meetings, quite a few of you have named your experience of feeling like you're swinging from intense mental storms, afflictive states to sudden, unexpected, deep, calm and peace. And then back again and over and over. This is extremely common on retreat. And what we can learn here is that the more we hold on to either of those states, the more we resist either of those states, the more we suffer. So we need to make space for those inevitable pendulum swings. And over time, as we keep doing that, they feel less traumatic. We see something similar in our life outside of retreat, too. And the Buddha spoke about equanimity in terms of daily life, In relation to a set of life circumstances that most of us tend to respond to quite strongly with either wanting or not wanting. And these are known as the eight vicissitudes or the eight worldly winds. (coughs) And the metaphor of wind it implies (coughs) that these are natural impersonal processes. So just like the weather, conditions are constantly changing. And trying to stop that change, trying to control the wind, is completely futile. So on a worldly level, these eight worldly winds are pairs of opposites. And when I list them in a moment, you'll hear how they tend to pull us into either holding on or rejecting. So as you listen, just tune in and notice your own reactions. So the eight are pleasure and pain. Gain and loss. Praise and blame. Fame and infamy. Now, on one level, it's pretty obvious that mostly we tend to only want to experience pleasure and gain and praise and fame. And never to experience pain, loss, blame, and infamy. But is that realistic? Have any of you in your life so far only experienced pleasure, gain, praise, fame? Probably not. And yet, unconsciously, this is what many of us are trying to achieve. So understanding equanimity can be a powerful antidote to this delusion. So we can understand how these eight worldly winds are constantly swirling. There's pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame. And when we see that they're constantly changing, it's easier to have more peace of mind. And instead of fighting reality, we can live more in accordance with it. And as a result, we experience more ease and harmony. So there's a famous poem from the Zen tradition that expresses the benefits of this balanced acceptance. It's called Xin Jin Ming, sometimes translated as trust in mind. It's a pretty long poem, but you might know just the first few lines. It says, The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the dis-ease of the mind. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the dis-ease of the mind. The dis-ease or the disease. So equanimity is the antidote. And as this becomes stronger, we learn we become less dependent on external conditions out there for our happiness. And as I mentioned earlier, without some kind of mindfulness training, most people tend to put all of their energy out there to try and manipulate outer circumstances and even other people to make ourselves happy. But we can't always control life like that. And if all of our energy is going out there to try and make things better, then we're dependent on those conditions for our happiness. And so the Buddha is inviting us over and over again to, instead of putting energy out there, put it in here and strengthen the heart and mind so that we have that resilience and that independence. No matter what the circumstances are of our lives, we have some Capacity to experience ease. So the U.S. Dharma teacher Shinzen Young, he has come up with a mathematical formula for suffering, that I found quite uh, simple and direct. So he defines suffering as S equals P multiplied by R. Suffering equals pain multiplied by resistance. S equals P times R. It's very simple and elegant, and it's a good reminder of the role of resistance in magnifying suffering. And as I've been exploring this in my own practice, sometimes I change the R to an I, the I of identification. So then the formula becomes suffering equals pain multiplied by identification. In other words, to the extent that we take our pain personally, to that extent, it becomes suffering. So to help release that, we can bring in the understanding of anatta, not self, that I briefly mentioned last night. And just remembering that when we hear the term not-self, to try not to get caught in that binary of setting up self in opposition to not-self, and instead to see this as a continuum so that we can start to recognize where, when, how the sense of self is strongly activated and to feel the suffering of that. And when we do, it's easier to let it release. The opposite is also true to really notice what it's like when the sense of self is less strongly activated, less intensely identified with, and the relative ease and spaciousness and peace of that becomes clear, and we naturally want to stay there. So we can use the wisdom of the three characteristics of an Dukkha Anatta to help soften our reactivity. And as we start to move more into the terrain of equanimity, when the far enemies are reduced, sometimes what we find is that the near enemies come into play. And the near enemies of equanimity are indifference, apathy, disconnection. So one of the particular challenges with equanimity is because it's quite a subtle quality, it can be easy to overlook. And if we haven't directly experienced it, it can be easy to misunderstand it, as assuming it's some kind of flat, blank, inert, non-responsiveness. And in popular culture, for example, sometimes people talk about being, quote, very zen. And usually by this they mean just kind of sitting there doing nothing when a massive crisis is going on. Now this is not true equanimity It's more like denial So the near enemy of equanimity Can be harder to recognize Because although it might seem Like it's in the same terrain It's just a bit off And there's a particular trap with equanimity That can be quite seductive Because it can seem to offer us relief from feeling afflictive emotions. And so especially, perhaps, in the beginning of Dharma practice, we can misuse or mispractice equanimity as a kind of deluded escapism or a defense, unconscious defense, against wanting to feel anything. And we might try to convince ourselves that we're just being equanimous, when in reality, again, we're in denial and perhaps just trying to Ignore the underlying anger or despair or self hatred or shame and so on. And in my own practice, it took quite a while to recognize this tendency at times. But in the end, what helped me to make that distinction was the body. And this is one reason why we put so much emphasis on body literacy tuning in to the more refined and subtle sensations in the body because it's these that can give us clues about what's really going on rather than what our intellect is trying to tell us should be happening. So for me, one of the key ways of recognizing the difference between real and fake equanimity is its energetic quality in the body. So with true equanimity, there's a subtle vibration and warmth, and a live energy, and a responsiveness. And those are missing when I'm in the near enemy. So if I'm disconnected and trying to pretend that it's equanimity, if I pay more refined attention, I can notice an underlying sense of flatness, or numbness, blankness, hollowness. So true equanimity is not those. It's not deadness or disconnection or disengagement. It's a very refined responsiveness. One that sees clearly what's going on and knows an appropriate response. So there's wisdom to it. So as our practice deepens and we do develop more stability of mind it becomes easier from that steadiness and stable base to see the constant movements of the mind towards what we like away from what we don't like and when we have that steadiness we can experience more directly how exhausting those constant movements can be and so we can start to settle back Release our energy from those movements. Let the eyes settle back. Let the ears settle back. Let the mind settle back. And just rest in the awareness that can know it all. So at this stage in the practice, it's almost like there's a a kind of a figure ground shift. So we're moving our attention away from the content, from the object that are usually in the foreground of our consciousness. And instead, we're bringing awareness to the background, understanding that knows them. And so we can play with this figure of ground shift in different ways. In one of my former lives, I used to be an architect, and early on on in the architecture training, we were developing more sensitivity to space. And we were given a drawing exercise where we were asked to draw the space of a room without drawing any of the things in it. So you might just play with that now as we're sitting in this whole room. You might begin by just noticing the objects in the room, the mats, the cushions, the people, the lights, the flowers, the Buddha images. So just take a look around Notice the content of the room. And then see if you can let those objects kind of move to the background of your awareness. And in the foreground, see if you can know the space that surrounds and is between all of those objects. get a sense of what it's like just to pay more attention to the space than the things that are in the space so we can explore our own minds in a similar way by withdrawing attention from the emotions and the dramas and the vicissitudes of wanting and not wanting and just know the awareness that receives it all with unentangled knowing. And this, at first, can be, for some people, a little uneasy when our meditation naturally settles down into those phases of more ease and quiet and peace. Because we're not used to it, we can feel a sense of groundlessness. And I've shared, I think, with some of you how sometimes people will come into meetings with me and say, what is happening? What do I do now? Nothing's going on. And usually when I ask people to investigate that a little more, what they actually find are that there are all kinds of subtle mental qualities that are coming into play, such as tranquility calm, steadiness of mind, spaciousness, ease, openness, and, of course, equanimity. So we need to refine our mindfulness to be able to recognize and stay with these more subtle and refined qualities of mind. And with practice the stilling of all those micro-movements towards and away from anything deepens and deepens into peace. So I'd like to close with just a few lines from the Pali Canon. It's attributed to the Buddha in a teaching he gave to Ananda. And this set of verses occurs many times throughout the Pali Canon. It says, This is peaceful, this is sublime, the stilling of all formations, the letting go of all attachments, the destruction of craving, fading away dispassion, cessation, nibbana. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment and let the words fade away.